In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here. That you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. We have arrived at the end of Passion Week this past week in the liturgy, in the calendar of the church is called Passion Week and it's a preparation for Holy Week. And right now there are thousands of young people landing in Rome in the Fiumicino airport, gathering, reconnoitering the place and finding their lodgings because on Sunday they will all reunite in St. Peter's Square for the opening of Holy Week with Palm Sunday. And there's a tradition that when you want to meet somebody, you text them and you say, let's meet at the obelisk in St. Peter's Square. But of course, when you arrive there, St. Peter's Square is absolutely jam-packed with people. And the very beginning of Palm Sunday begins at that obelisk. So it's surrounded by all kinds of people, and that's where the Pope is, so it's pretty hard to get to the obelisk. And this is a very ancient obelisk. It's made of some kind of granite or porphyry or something like that. It was made in Egypt almost 2,000 years before Christ, and it was dedicated to the sun god. So it's, it was a pagan uh, you know, a pig, you know what an obelisk, right? It's like a, it's like the center for a kind of a, kind of a dial, and it was a way for them, the pagans, the the Egyptians, to worship the sun. Many centuries later, the Roman emperor Caligula, in the year 37 BC, had that massive obelisk transported to Rome, and he had it installed in the very center of his. Roman circus, which was just like to the side of where St. Peter's is today. And um, he built these meadows, and he built the circus, and the horses, and so forth. The chariots would go around that massive uh, obelisk. And it took thousands of people just to carry that thing. I mean, the thing just weighs, I don't know how many tons. And uh, later, uh, when St. Peter arrived in Rome, he, of course, he was uh, arrested by the Roman authorities, and since he did not want to renounce uh, his uh, devotion to Christ, his, his belief in Christ, he was uh, to be crucified there right in that circus, but he did not feel it himself worthy to be crucified in the same way as Jesus, so he was crucified upside down, you know, head down. And um, probably the last thing he saw was that obelisk, which is right there today in St. Peter's Square. It was later moved from the circus and placed there in the center of, um, of that square. And it has an inscription, I remember seeing that, an inscription that dates to the first century uh, by uh, Augustus, 
and it makes reference to the hundred men or so that had to move it with the horses and and uh, you know that, that was a, it was a triumphant move but if you look at the very top of this obelisk it has a kind of a, kind of a bronze cross at the top and inside that bronze cross there's a relic and it's the relic of the true cross on which our Lord himself was crucified and it's as though you know what we can draw from that is that Christianity that is the cross of Jesus conquers paganism it was originally an obelisk that was a symbol of paganism well Jesus is crossed you know conquers that overcomes it but we can think as we are preparing for Holy Week that we want the cross of Jesus to be integrated into our life to conquer us too to conquer our weakness our human vision our own laziness and our own sensuality our own tendency you know to turn in on ourselves and think too much about ourselves we want the truth of the cross of Christ on which he died for us for our sins to kind of integrate itself uh, into our life and it can also be said that that obelisk represents the kind of human desire that men have always had for God even the pagans thousands of years before Christ they desired God they wanted they believed in God it's the most natural thing they wanted God but they didn't have a full revelation of Jesus Christ. So they, they were pagans. They did what they could. So they worshiped the sun. I mean, you look at the sun, it looks pretty powerful. And maybe that's God, you know. And, uh, and uh, you know, it represents that desire. But it is only truly fulfilled, that desire for God, in Jesus Christ himself. Because he is true God and true man. And uh, this truth is what is going to be rebooted during Holy Week, so starting this this Sunday with Palm Sunday, and then throughout the days of Holy Week, and there will be many many people in Rome and many ceremonies, and one at the end of Holy Week, one is absolutely just destroyed, you know, because you stay up late, you pray a lot, and you see many of the sights, and of course that cross on top of the obelisk just towers over the the square. And, of course, it is given a very unique and special place of honor. And it is that cross that welcomes all the pilgrims uh, that come to the Basilica. Because just a few meters away is the Basilica, St. Peter's Basilica. And underneath the Basilica itself are the bones of St. Peter himself. And many, many other early Christians who were martyred for their faith. But on the very base of that uh, obelisk, there is an inscription... That I think it was, I think it was added sometime in the 16th century. I'm not exactly sure when, but it's a beautiful inscription uh, that is written in Latin, but that we can make our own. It says, "Christus vincit, Christus regnat, Christus imperat." Christ conquers, Christ reigns, Christ. Imperat. I mean, Christ is uh, rules, rules, you know, he rules, as we say. And I remember at the famous uh, uh, Mass of the Beatification of St. Osmia in 1992, May 17th, 1992, I remember being there 
kind of hovering over St. Peter's Square because I was on a building just, just like looking over it, doing the translation of this massive crowd of 300,000 people packed into St. Peter's uh, Square there. And the first opening hymn was Christus Vincit, Christus Regnat, Christus Imperat. And it's, a, it's a beautiful hymn that talks really about the, you know, the, the reigning Christ victorious, you could say, over, over death. Christ conquers, Christ reigns, imperat. Christ, it's really Christ commands. Eh? Like, like when he asks us to do something, we, ha- we have to obey, really. And both sides of the cross are accompanied by these beautiful uh, fountains, really, that symbolize the waters of salvation that flow from the cross. Eh? The waters of salvation, of course, refer to, to baptism. And on uh, the Easter Vigil here on Saturday, we're going to have a young man uh, who's 20, 28 years old who will be baptized here. And uh, it's amazing, you know, when you think that thanks to baptism, faith in Jesus Christ and baptism, a man can just receive that water with the with the you know, invocation of the Holy Blessed Trinity, and that, that man you know, can be purified of his sins and, and, and be connected to God, you could say. You know, it's the source of salvation because, well, that's what our Lord, uh, the means that our Lord gave us eh, to continue his saving grace. Mm-hmm. Now, today is really, it's, it's still uh, Passion Week. Mm-hmm. And uh, so now we're in Passion Week, Friday of Passion Week. And the next week will be Holy Week. So Passion Week and then Holy Week. And specifically today, in Friday of Passion Week, if you recall the Gospel, uh, it recounts uh, a passage where um, like the, the Jews are uh, kind of taking up stones and they want to, you know, they want to, they want to stone Jesus. You know? They want to stone Jesus. And he says to them, well, for what good work do you want to stone me? You know, is it because I, because I raised this uh, dead man, because I healed this person? Like, why, what good works? He said. And they say to him, it is not that we want to stone you for the good works. We want to stone you because you are putting yourself at the same level of God, and you are only a man. This, they said, was blasphemy. So... It's clear that it was that they understood that he was saying that he is a man, but that he is also uh, that he is also God. And for that, I mean, it's very clear that they they understood what he was what he was saying. Now, after that, they, well, at that moment they wanted to kill him, right? They, and they they were about to grab him, but somehow somehow he slipped through the crowd. And the gospel says he left and he went to Bethany. So Bethany is outside of Jerusalem, not, not terribly far away. And there he had his friends. He had Martha, Mary, and uh, Lazarus, a place where he could like chill and be cool, you know, good place. Now, there is a tradition in the church that the saints have kind of uh, reflected on, although it's not in the Bible, it's not in the Gospels as such. It's just a, it's a, it's a beautiful, pious tradition. It may not be true, but... It could very well be true. It is that when he went there, when he left that moment in which they were going to stone him, he had a message sent to his mother, the Blessed Virgin Mary. The message, because she was in Galilee at that time, he's in Jerusalem, she's up in Galilee, 
He said to her, Now is my hour. You must come. Mother, come and be with me. So she would have, like, I don't know how they got messages around. They didn't have, uh, I don't know how they did that, but they got a guy on a horse and he went off to Galilee. You know, who knows how long it took, but she got the message and it said, my hour has arrived. Come. And it's a beautiful image, you know, that the Lord is saying, mother, I need you. You know, I need you to be close. And we can imagine that when, when she read that, she already suspected that something would happen already when uh, Simeon, the old, uh, the old man, had prophesied that, well, that, this would, that he, he would not die until he would see the Messiah, and he held Jesus in his arms. But then he turned to Mary and he said, and your, a sword shall pierce your heart. It was like a prophecy. Like this is indeed the salvation you know, of the world, but... Your heart, a sword, shall pierce. So she, she probably didn't know exactly what that meant, but she knew she was destined somehow uh, to suffer. And now, when he says, this now is my hour, I need you. So she you know, immediately gets up. I mean, in those days, it must have been difficult to travel, but she understood that she had to be with her son. Now, this is a tradition. It's not necessarily you know, revealed or anything, but it's a beautiful thought to think that now, during Holy Week, when we go over all the events of Jesus' passion, his death, and his resurrection, it's as though Jesus is saying to you, as he would have said to his Blessed Mother, I need you. I need you now not to be dissipated, not to be kind of forgetful. I need you now to meditate during this Holy Week not to flee, not to go away, not to forget, but to stay close. Eh? To be with me, he is saying, through these events. Mm-hmm. And that means we, we want to, during Holy Week, we want to we really integrate the grandeur of the Paschal mystery into our life. That is, to contemplate the meaning of the Passion, you know, the way Jesus suffered, his condemnation, then of course his crucifixion, his death. But obviously it ends with the great miracle of the, of the resurrection, right? But maybe we haven't really integrated this in our life. Is it possible, you know, Lord, that I haven't really, I, I've just, I know about these events, I see a crucifix, but see, we're, we've covered the cross right now. You know, this is Passion Week, we cover the cross because it hasn't happened yet. It's kind of like, this is a great tradition. You cover the cross because Jesus is not yet crucified, but it's a way for us to like, interiorize the reality of the cross, especially by the way we read the scriptures, by the way we do the way of the cross. And, of course, throughout the centuries, saints have contemplated these events, the way of the cross, the meditation of all these events. And in some way, the Lord is saying to us, I need you. Stay particularly close. Fight dissipation. Do not accept uh, lukewarmness or mediocrity in your life. And one of the things we will see uh, in the liturgy is we will see passages uh, read from the Old Testament. In particular, the very famous um, prophet from the 8th century, Isaiah. 
in Isaiah, was from the court of Judah. He was like a royal, like he was like an official court prophet. Like he was a guy there. Everybody, you know, respected him. And he has some of the most powerful prophecies of, of our Lord's passion. And one of the expressions he uses, which must have been very mysterious uh, to the people reading it back then, but becomes clear as we read it now through the lens of uh, the, the New Testament. It's the image of the man of sorrows. The man of sorrows. This is what he says in chapter 53 of his, of his prophecy. He says, He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And everybody was trying to think, like, who is this man? Like, at that time, you know? And now we can see that, that these prophetic words of Isaiah, which, which, with which we, we begin the liturgy on Good Friday, of course, refer to the Passion of our Lord. That's why we put it on Good Friday, the day that commemorates the Passion of our Lord and the death of our Lord. We say, it's Good Friday, because, well, it comes, uh, apparently it comes from the Old English, which means God's Friday, God, good, I don't know, you know. So, uh, and, uh, and there we have a, a you know, a very uh, tense account of the Passion. And if in Isaiah, the man of sorrows was this kind of mysterious man, nobody knew exactly who he was, who's this guy, like, you know, I don't know. Now, in Good Friday, that mysterious man, that man of sorrows now takes on, he's given a name, he's given a face, he's this mysterious man of sorrows is Jesus himself, who is despised, who is rejected by all men. He's Jesus Christ, the face of Jesus of Nazareth. Because he was God. As we saw, you know, they were going to, they, they recognized that he, they were going to stone him for, for blasphemy because he was, for them he was human, but he declared himself to be God. But he was God. Yet, he took on a human condition. That is, he descended from the glory of heaven as the second person of the Blessed Trinity and took, it all, took on all the weight of sin, even though he, he never sinned himself. And, you know, this was, uh, this was clearly understood by those men. And although, of course, Isaiah calls him the man of sorrows. I mean, Jesus was not morose. He was not bitter. He was not kind of a, a cynical, doleful person. Of course, he did endure times of sadness, times of rejection. But, as St. Paul says, he could rejoice in his suffering because he was always able to focus on the final outcome. And, and see, when we meditate on the Passion and we read the, the story, the account of Jesus' suffering from his flagellation to the crowning of thorns, the, the, he got slapped in the face you know, by the high priest's servant, uh, or the kiss of Judas, you know, Judas who betrayed him. And in order to indicate who he was to the, to the high priests and to the soldiers, he said to them, okay, you know, the guy who I kiss, he's the guy. But he wanted to pretend that, that he was still Jesus' disciple. 
So he went up to Jesus and he, he kissed him on the cheek, you know, oh, hey man, you know, like, like pretending to be happy and giving a hug and happy to see him. And that, you know, blistering line of Jesus when he receives that, he says to him, Judas, is it with a kiss that you betray the Son of Man? Is it with a kiss? And then Judas well, he realizes what's happened. And then they grab him, of course, right? And, you know, all this is part of what makes up the man of sorrows. Right? In fact, in, in Mexico, eh, they have a tradition there of representing Jesus crowned and tied to a pillar, right? It's like a statue that they make that helps people in their devotion. But... One of the things Blessed Alvaro saw when he, that's Blessed Alvaro over there, right? So when he went to Mexico many years ago, he saw a statue like this, but what he noticed is that the cheek of Jesus was completely, like there was this massive kind of, you know, sore, like an open wound that was like bleeding and, and very, literally very painful, you know, in these, these, these kind of Baroque style, um, you know, uh, statues. And he asked, well, why does he have that wound on his cheek and they say well that's they say in the Spanish el beso de Judas you know, the, it's the kiss of Judas the pain that that betrayal left like a kind of a mark I mean naturally didn't leave a physical mark but the equivalent you know in the moral sense and so he's the man of sorrows but he knows the outcome that it will be his resurrection so we too sometimes experience pain maybe rejection, failure. And we must always see the things that happen to us, sickness, rejection. And all the, think of the things that have really been difficult for you, maybe just this week or this past semester. Right? Have you been able to see those things through the prism of God's love, through the truth that God allows for things like that to happen because he can draw good out of those things. We can be purified. We can somehow you know, grow in our love and our abandonment right, to God's plan for us. Just as Jesus would have done in the final outcome. And it's amazing that, that art through the ages has been able to conflate the man of what we call the man of, of sorrows, that is, his passion with the tomb that he was placed in eh, and him rising up from that tomb. Eh? And uh, I remember back in the early 80s, I was taking a university course here at U of T in a massive uh, auditorium. I don't remember where it was, uh, but in case there was, uh, the, the prof was teaching us about uh, early medieval art. Or no, it was late medieval art, right? And in particular, there was a famous... Uh, artist, his name was Dirk Bouts from the, I think it was the 15th century or maybe 14th century, and she was explaining the man of sorrows, this is the man of sorrows, and there you see Jesus completely covered in blood, right, and she was explaining how the artists of that time would show all the uh, instruments of the passion around him, right, they would show um, all the painful instruments that he would have suffered through, like the, you know, the, the noose uh, of Judas, you know, Judas committed suicide, the, the cock that crowed when, when Peter betrayed Jesus, uh, the sword, you know, with the cutting off of the ear, the, the, the nails that he suffered with, uh, the dice where they, they used the dice to, you know, 
to win his shroud or the coins uh, that that Judas won for betraying him, you know, the 30 pieces of silver, the shroud that he was dressed in, the sponge which they raised, you know, and they're all like they're all over these paintings and they surround Jesus in that way, right? The moon and the sun, right? Uh, the ladder, the hammer that they used to nail his hands, uh, even the very hands of Pilate that was washing his hands. There's these Pilate, the, the, these hands in midair, you know, with a bowl, you know, just these little, you know, like, remember that? That happened too. And that was painful. You know, he was washing his hands. He said, I have nothing to do with this man. You know? Or the Lord's garments, the ladder, the pliers, everything. And people would meditate on each one of those, right? And so she was describing this. And she would say, well, here's the ladder, here's the sponge, etc. And she knew all this already by heart. And then she turned as this prof, and she suddenly saw what she had never noticed before. And that was the tomb, the tomb in which Jesus had been laid. And he's standing in the tomb. It's, like a, it's more like a casket. And she realized that, well, Jesus is standing with all those blood and marks and stuff, but he's nevertheless standing in the tomb. And he's raised up. You know, it's, it's, like, it's like a subtle reference, right, to the to the resurrection. He's rising from it. And on the other side we see Mary and John. And he's, he's kind of crossing his hands, uh, showing us his wounds uh, on his hands, on his side. And uh, there's a story about uh, St. Teresa of Avila in about, uh, I'm going to say, 1535 or something like that. She had been a nun for quite a while and um, she was in a convent and she recounts that, well, you know, she lived a pretty, you know, good life. It was chill, you know, she didn't pray too much and she would have lots of visits and she had a, what she describes as a fairly comfortable life. And, and then one day, it was around Holy Week, she, she went into a chapel and she saw a statue like that, you know, of the Man of Sorrows. And she suddenly was just overwhelmed with emotion at seeing all the wounds of Jesus, realizing that you know, I, I somehow have taken part in all those wounds. And she was just completely overwhelmed with sorrow at seeing our Lord. And it was just a statue. It was a, you know, and it was left there. I don't know. And that, she describes it as the beginning of her conversion, right? And, and that's from that moment on, she realized that she'd been living a lukewarm life. And, and now she was just completely transformed, right? Just at seeing just at seeing that statue you know, in her life she, oh, she became of course a, a great saint so well that's what we can ask the Lord for a conversion during this holy week yeah, by contemplating the crucified one yeah, and um, you know thinking of him and uh, praying to Jesus and uh, you know, seeing to what degree do I really meditate on the passion and um, and all the little, you know, all the little passages that we know of, right? Like like the famous passage when Pilate presents him to the crowd. He says, "Ecce homo, behold the man," right? And and um, you know, the the people, you know, sort of moved uh, by the high priests and the Pharisees decide, no, no, crucify him, crucify him. Ecce homo, and that that in and itself became famous. Uh, a famous uh, style of painting. So if we can embrace the passion, its meaning, mm -hmm. the cross, 
we will see Jesus is really the example of all the virtues of love, of obedience, of humility, of detachment, of gratitude, of reparation. And it is said that all the sacraments come out of his side in the sense that you know, after he, to make sure he was dead, the Longinus you know, speared his side and out of his side came water and blood. Right? And uh, it's a sign of his humanity and his divinity, the sacraments kind of oozing out of his side. It's a, a sign of that, right? And um, Lord, I, I want to follow your example. We can say that, you know. And I want to take up valiantly the cross that you have uh, wanted for me and try to see, well, what are the crosses that you want for me? And um, there are some crosses, some difficulties, some hardships. Maybe we have a temptation to complain, or we can ask our Lord to help us be strong, to embrace them, so that we can really acquire that conversion of heart that means embracing the cross that God has given us, given us and know how to cheerfully embrace that as part of our sanctification, which leads us eh, to the glory of heaven, the glory of the resurrection. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede for me.